You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. So, uh, without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Kathy Eisenhart. Thanks a lot, Tom. Okay, well, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for uh, coming out to see, uh, to see what I have to say. Um, what I'm going to be talking about today is, uh, as you can see from the title, Research Lens on Entrepreneurial Firms. So for those of you who I've had in class, this is quite a bit of stuff that actually has nothing to do with what you've ever heard me say before, so some new stuff. Let me uh, start out by giving you a bit, oops, let's see. Not quite sure where we are in the presentation here. I think we're still getting used to it. But let me tell you a little bit about why research, why I wanted to talk about research. Because what's going to happen this quarter is you're going to hear from some really great speakers, people like Greg Brando next week from Pixar, the week after that Rick Wallace from KLA 10 Core, Jim Breyer, top VC, and so forth. And so what, is a, what does a research person have to say that those guys don't have to say? And I think what it is and what, what research brings to thinking about entrepreneurial firms, which is what I'm going to talk about today, is that rather than being a real manager, we get to pick the projects we work on. So we try and think about what are the interesting problems and work on those. But if you're a real manager, you've got to work on what your problem is in, in, in actually facing your business. So we don't have to do, deal with crises. We get to pick out the problems we like. We also get to study them systematically. So we can look at a problem or an issue and look at a whole bunch of different firms and how they approach it. In contrast, if you're a manager, you know your own firm super well, but you don't know what everybody else is really doing. That's, that's, what, that's our edge, if you will. And then we have time. Again, in the business world, I'm sure many of you have worked, you all know, you're really, really busy. Uh, in academics, we're really busy too, but part of what we're busy doing is hanging out and thinking about what it is we're, we're understanding and seeing. So the real value of, of being an academic is we have time to think, and managers don't. They are just too darn busy. So what we get to, what I will hopefully talk about that maybe some of my colleagues uh, will speak about in a different way, but I'll talk about knowing a whole lot of ideas in a somewhat thin way about lots of different companies. And then what you're going to hear the rest of the quarter is people deep diving on their own experience. So I'm going to give you a little bit of how researchers look at it and a little bit more, lots of information about lots of stuff. So that's what, um, that's if you will, a little bit about why, why I'm going to talk about research today. Um, Let's see here. No. I think I, I think I know what wrong. Two slides got got reversed. So what I'm going to do is talk about really four sets of ideas about about entrepreneurial companies. First of all, how to get started. Second, how to how to raise money. Third, how to create markets, and then fourth, some stuff about rules. So that's where we're going to go today. Um, so let me get started. A little bit about how do you get started, and ask you a couple questions. Why do some firms' ventures grow, others don't do much? What does a strong venture team really look like? What's a great venture market? And really try and think about those questions and try and maybe give you a few answers of, from some research we've done in semiconductor software and computing on those issues. So first of all, and maybe think about what's the relationship between them. Is it more important to have a great team, more important to be in a good market, and so forth? Let's first of all start out talking about a team. What's a great team look like? Okay. 
You can think about that for a sec. What makes for a great team? We actually know some fairly specific stuff. Three to five people. It might sound a little bit too mechanical, but in fact, if you only have two people, you typically have way too much to do, and you don't have enough diversity of opinion. If you get more, if you get like six, seven, or eight people, you really don't have a team anymore, and you spend all your time trying to coordinate those people uh, because you can't, you can't manage it. On the other hand, a number between three, four, and five is typically right. The second thing that we found that you really need in a great team is that it's genuinely cross-functional. So you really do want somebody from engineering, from marketing, from finance, uh, manufacturing, if you're in that kind of a business. But not engineers filling the job. What does that mean? That means is you don't have a marketing person if it's really just a double E calling him or herself a marketer. That's not a marketing person. That's just a person calling themselves something. What you really want is people who genuinely can do those functions. Because there are different issues that each of those functions brings, different expertise, and so you really want this cross-functional team, not just people pretending they're cross-functional. So what are the, some of the worst teams we've seen? Two engineers, a terrible team typically. Um, don't, you want to have some variety and you want to have more people. Third thing that you often want to have is, um, is people have worked together before. Because one of the things that happens in new companies is that you will find yourself in a lot of stressful situations. And if you start to realize you're in a stressful situation that the other people you're working with are really jerks and you don't like them, it's kind of too late. And so the degree to which you've had some prior experience with the people you're working with is very important to really have a top team. And then finally, one of the things that people don't realize, but I think is really true, is that you need that the best teams typically have people of a variety of ages. So not just 20-year-olds, but 30s, 40s, and 50s. And it's not so much because 50-year-olds are like father figures or mother figures, and 20-year-olds are really exciting and innovative, because actually 50-year-olds can be innovative too. But it's more that they have different life experiences, and so you're seeing different aspects of the problem. And the overall idea of what you're trying to do in a team like this, you're trying to have a big enough team so there's bandwidth to get the job done. You're also trying to institutionalize some conflict with different kinds of functions, with different age groups who typically will see things in different ways. But you're still trying to get along, which is why the prior experience really helps. So one of the things we've seen is that this kind of a team is usually the kind of a team that works best. Uh, maybe sometimes you may, see, you may see in the media that the team was actually smaller. In real life, typically it's got a team of great companies typically has that kind of a mix to it. So that's one set of things to think about is who do you want, if you're starting out a venture, who do you want in your team? Second maybe idea is what market do you want to go into? And while there are lots of different kinds of markets, you can generically think about markets as being emergent, growth, and mature. Emergent markets are typically small, kind of disorganized. They may be rapidly growing, but they're typically small. It's usually early. Growth markets are usually a bit bigger, over 30, 40, 50 million in sales. Maybe 30 is probably a good number. And they're growing at over 20% a year. Mature markets are usually bigger than that, usually bigger, actually bigger than 30 million, actually, actually more like bigger than 100, 150, 200 million, and growing slower. The question is, which of those markets do you want to start in? Emergent, growth, mature. You want to start in growth. If you start in, if you start in emergent, a lot of people think you want to start in emergent markets. What happens in emergent markets is it's very hard to get the timing of the market right. So you might start way too soon, or you might be a little late. Usually you're too soon. And usually you're starting with something that's wrong. 
you know, your business model's not right, your technology's not quite right, you haven't quite got the customer right, you've got, you've got mistakes in it. And if you start too soon, those mistakes will weigh you down and you'll, you'll spend your money, you'll get a bad image, and you kind of won't go anywhere. If you start in a mature market, what happens? What happens in mature markets, they're actually not bad markets to start in, but what happens if you start in a mature market is typically it's hard to grow. So if you can find a part of a mature market where you're particularly good, you can, if you think of a bowl of fruits and you're the kumquat and you can find the spot, you can do all, all right and you can actually be profitable, but it's very hard to grow in a mature market. You're, so you're in the kumquat spot. Profitable, lifestyle business, but it'll be hard to have a really successful venture. So growth markets are where you want to start. Okay. Um, now let's move on. All right, I've told you a little bit about it. By the way, I'm going to go through a bunch of different topics. Um, so I'm kind of doing this how to get started thing. Uh, okay, I've told you a little bit about teams that are effective, a little bit about markets, growth markets. So the question is, is it more important to be, have a better team? Is it more important to be in a better market? Or do better teams just pick better markets? As in, they're just smarter and got more on the ball and they go to bigger markets, better markets. Right? Is it the team? Is it the market? Or are they correlated? Well, what we found in looking at our research is kind of an interesting thing. What we found is what we call the surfer model of venture growth. Important key topic for today. Um, what's the idea? If you can decode that two by two. It's saying if you start in a non-growth market with a lousy team, you're going to get X revenue. And we'll say in your wildest dreams, you're going to make a million dollars. You know, revenue of a million dollars, and that's even pretty good. If you have a weak team and a great market, or a great team and a weak market, you're going to get, let's say, 4x. But if you have the combination of the great team and the great market, the synergy of that, 12x is probably even low. It's probably more like 20x. There is a huge synergy around great team and a great market, which is why it's the surfer model of venture growth. Because if you think about how do you get a great, great ride, it takes a great wave and it takes a great surfer. And that's really what growth is about in ventures. It's that combination of great teams and the great markets. So now you might ask, well, why don't great teams just figure out the great markets? And in fact, when we were doing this research, that's what, that's what we thought was going to happen. And we were thinking, oh, no, everybody's, all the good teams are going to pick all the good markets, and we aren't going to be able to disentangle the effects. But what happens is people start what they know. And so it's really where you start is largely a matter of luck because people start what they know. And so what we actually found that these two dimensions are almost uncorrelated empirically. So the idea here is that you want a great team, you'd like to get a great market, and there's a whole big component of luck that says the day you go out to Santa Cruz to surf, it's a great, it's a great day for waves. And you don't have a whole lot of control over that. So that's the surfer model of, of, uh, of new venture growth. Um, massive synergy around great teams and great markets. Another idea we've been th thinking about, let me just summarize that there. It's all about luck and skill. One other thing you might also get from that story is it's also a whole lot about founding conditions. If you, it's really how you start, what markets you start in, what people you start with, with whom you start. So it's really a lot about founding conditions. And in fact, is there any such thing as a turnaround among ventures? Do turnarounds, do you ever see ventures turnaround? Not really. Not really. You hardly are. In fact, this. This, this line here is an optimistic line. What these lines are showing you, if you start out with a good team and a good market, you will go exponentially 
if you start out with, a, with any of those other conditions, you basically don't do much of anything. You're what's known popularly as the living dead. It's very tough to ever come back. Because what happens is companies start, ventures start out a little bit better than others, and they start compounding advantages. They get the alliance, and the other guys don't. They get the little bit better, better VC, the other guys don't. They get the little bit better customer, and the other guys don't. And those advantages compound over time. And as I say, these guys really almost go nowhere. So it's very tough. It's almost impossible to recover from poor start and, a bad, and bad breaks. You're better, to, you're better to give your mother back her money and start fresh. Okay. There's a couple things that we've been thinking about as far as uh, getting started. Let me turn now to some things that actually one of my, uh, one of my uh, colleagues, Ben Hallin, is in the audience is working on these days. But the all-important topic of raising money. Okay, you've got your great team, you're picking out your market, you're going for it. So when's the right time to raise money? Who do you want to ask? Whom do you want to ask? And what's the toughest part of fundraising? So a couple questions there. When do you, when do you, ask, when do you ask Kleiner versus asking your mother? What's the toughest part of fundraising? Okay. How many of you have been out fundraising, by the way? So few of you, you've tried it? Okay. Let's see, I'll tell you a little bit about what we're finding. We've been looking, actually we've been looking at a particular industry, but also talking to some other people. We've been looking in um, internet security industry. And we looked at that industry because it turns out to be an industry where it's fairly low capital to get into, and you get a wide spectrum of people ranging from 19-year-olds who dropped out of you know, MIT and you know, really experienced people who came out of Symantec. So you see a big range of entrepreneurs, and you see a big range of strategies. But there's some things about those strategies that are always in common, whether you're a 19-year-old dropout or whether you're a 45-year-old you know, successful person. But before I start on that, let me just say one thing. What does successful fundraising look like? Well, obviously, you want to raise enough money. But you don't, and, and you don't want to raise too much because then you'll dilute your ownership, but you don't want to raise too little because you don't want to run out. So there's, some, there's an art to knowing how much you raise. You actually, have to, you actually have to plan ahead and think about your cash flows and so forth. So you want to raise the right amount. But the other thing that's particularly important that people sometimes forget is you want to raise it fast. You don't want to spend a lot of time raising money because you really do have a business to run. And so you want to raise enough, you want to raise it fast, and you also like to get the most helpful investors that you can. So you would love to get Sequoia, or Kleiner, or Excel, or DFJ, or whomever. Um, but maybe you can't. But anyway, you want, it, you want the most helpful investors, you want to do it fast, you want to get enough. Okay, so that's what successful fundraising looks like. How do you do that? Let's start with the issue of what's the right time. When do you, when do you go out for money? Well, a lot of things may occur to you, but it certainly might occur to you that you want to go out for money when you need money, right? That would seem sensible. But of course, it's not sensible. Because when you need money, you're desperate. It's what you want to do instead, is you want to go out for money when you've actually got some substantial signals that you're actually a good firm. You've got a patent. You've won a technology contest. You have a customer. You have something, something that you can show people that you've accomplished. So it's when you've accomplished things is, is when you have the most leverage to go get money, not when you need it. The other thing that we've found is that it's really important to be real. It's really important, and what does that mean? It means to be realistic about who you are. Now, if you're Larry Page and you're about to do your second startup, he's got a whole different set of people he's going to talk to than you, 
let's say. I'm assuming, I mean, I don't use, I'm assuming you're not a famous person who's started a lot of startups. So for many of you, you have to be realistic. It's like, it's like going to the prom. You've got to be realistic about who you ask because not everyone is going to think you're all that, that great. So it's really important to be realistic about what you really have, who you really are, and who's actually going to fund a venture like yours. So what does that mean? It means, first of all, asking your friends what's realistic, how good are you really, and getting the right level of venture capitalist or right level of angel investor who's really going to be interested in you. The other thing is to find out who's actually funding ventures like yours. One of the th mistakes that people make is they will look at what they do and they'll say, okay, we are, we're going to do, let's say, internet security. We're an internet security company. Um, we're, we're looking for a seed round. Let's go find venture capitalists to, who specialize in that area and who are doing seed rounds. That all sounds sensible. But the problem is that's a heuristic is about, about what venture capitalists used to be doing, not what they're doing now. And so oftentimes there's more information that you can find out about who's actually, who's actually investing now. So, so people may have a reputation of having invested there in the past, but they not, may not be investing there now. So being realistic about how good you are and being realistic about who's actually funding ventures like yours is very important. And you can find that out largely from your network. The other thing that can be tricky about this and deceptive is that people tend to think that just because you gave a pitch it means that VC is interested in you. And that's really not true. That venture capitalist might be interested in kind of figuring out that segment. That venture capitalist might want to have all sorts of agenda items on their mind. But funding you may not be one of them. So one of the traps that inexperienced investors or, or, or entrepreneurs fall into is believing that doing a pitch is really about interest. It's really not necessary. I mean, maybe it is, but maybe it isn't. But don't be fooled that just because they're looking at your slides doesn't mean, doesn't mean much of anything. It's rather when they start doing due diligence, when they start talking to part, when they start starting to talk to other partners and so forth, are the real signals. And another one of the keys is if you're not getting those signals, if you're still seeing that associate or that junior partner, you can pretty much figure you're not going anywhere with them, and you may as well cut your losses and move on to more realistic uh, funding sources. Another thing, by the way, if you're going to start your company and it's not in, not in Silicon Valley, if you're going to start your company in Atlanta, in Austin, in somewhere else, um, be reminded that it's really tough to get Silicon Valley money. They will look at you, and they will, and they will, you know, and they will often bring you along. But whether or not they fund you is a lot different story. You're much better off to go with regional investors than with the so-called big-time investors. It's very hard to get that, that kind of money. So again, think real about how good your product is and how, who's really going to realistically invest in you and who's investing now. Okay. How about improving your chances? talk a little bit about that, what we've been figuring out. We call it the, the power of casual dating. What's that mean? It means a lot of times when you're starting up a company, especially if you're not a well-known person, you really have to start to get to know people. And it's more than just a matter of, hey, you took Tom Byers' class and Tom Byers will go introduce you to somebody, uh, let's say at, at, at DFJ. Um, that works, but that's not a relationship. You know, Tom introducing you to Steve Jurvetson is not a relationship. And so what you want to do, if you can, is engage in what we call casual dating, which means find reasons to talk to people in the investment community. Was that supposed to happen? Somebody did it in the back. Oh, OK. Uh, talk to someone in the investment community about what it is you're up to. So that's, uh, and, and, and seek advice. One of, the nice, one of the nice ways to do it is to seek advice about business problems. 
So for example, uh, ask them about how you might position your product better. Ask them about how you might, who you might hire as a VP of engineering. Uh, but find a number of different ways to develop a relationship before you need money. Not, see, don't show up with somebody, don't show up at somebody's door when you need money. Show up on their door beforehand to build a relationship. Then finally, what's the toughest challenge? Closing the deal. There is nothing harder than closing the deal. And we've seen in a whole lot of cases, entrepreneurs who are constantly talking to the same VCs over and over and over again. They want to do a little more due diligence here, a little more due diligence there. We've got to talk to this partner. We've got to check with that partner. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. It's hard. What you need to be able to do is close the deal. And that usually involves having some sort of a credible alternative, either another investor, personal money, perhaps family money that you might have, bootstrap opportunities, but something that where you can say, if I don't get the money in a month, I'm going on to this other thing, and it's real, and, it's, and you can do that. Otherwise, you'll get strung out on and on and on and on. And you'll give in that pitch, and you'll be talking to people, and you'll be going, and you'll think it'll never end. The interesting thing, though, is once you get one investor to fall, they'll all follow, or many of them will follow. So you need that first one, and then once you get that first one, there'll start to be a cascade, and you'll start to get it. But you've got to get that first one, and you've got to have, you've got to have a time frame and a credible alternative that lets you say, um, you have, to, you have to invest or else I move on. So it's really all about getting to yes. So raising money is not about having the best PowerPoint or even the best business plan, although a good business plan and a good PowerPoint may matter. It's really about understanding it as a negotiation, that you've got to go when you're not desperate, you've got to have alternatives, and so forth. Okay? So I'm supposed to give you a little time for questions, so maybe I'll... A little bit last thing here, and then maybe a couple other things, and then I'll let it open it up. Another thing, by the way, we found is different strategies for different people. Again, if you're Larry Page, you do one thing. If you were me, you do another. So if you're a high-status person, what you want to do is get your funding fast because you're trading on your status. But if you're low-status, what you want to do is you want to wait until you've actually done something. Because the first investor or two that you get really then sets the tone for who's going to invest in you in the future. So if you're a low-status person, and we're probably most of us are, you want to have some accomplishments, and then you go. If you go too soon, you're going to end up with lower-status investors, and that's going to be the story of your life. Um, so if you're Larry Page, go early, or Sergey Brin. But if you're us, accomplish something and go a little later. Okay? Let me tell you a little bit about some things we found about creating markets. Um, so I'm on a third topic now. I was on, you've launched, you picked your team, you've got your market, you've gotten some money. How do you create a market? What have we seen on that? And here we've, we've looked at a couple of different kinds of industries. Um, but let me tell you some of the things we found. Get ahead here. Um, well, first of all, how do you discover good opportunities? I think one of the things we found is you really don't discover it. Opportunities aren't like an Easter egg hunt where you just look under a rock and, oh, there's the opportunity. They aren't really like that. You actually socially create opportunities. So you don't really discover them. It's not like a matter of turning over enough rocks and you find one. It's, in fact, turning over one, sort of seeing maybe kind of an egg there, and then shaping that egg and creating, them, creating it. In particular, how do you do that? You try to become the cognitive referent in a market. That is, you try to become, to use, to use a well-known example, you try to be Amazon. Amazon has become the cognitive referent of online shopping or eBay, the cognitive referent of, of auctions. But how do you do that? How do you grab people's attention and so they associate a market with you? 
MySpace with, with uh, social networking among high school kids. What you typically want to do is if you, if you have a complex, especially if you have a complicated product, you want to give people a template to help them understand your product that they recognize. And again, Amazon's a great example that everybody knows, but the use of a shopping cart in checkout really got people understanding what Amazon was about. There's another company called Verisign that does uh, authenticating of, of uh, credit cards online. They also use, use words like passport, wallet, ID, and so forth to, for you to understand more easily what their product was about. So the degree to which you can talk, message your product in a way that is using common words that people understand to give the idea of what it is your product or service does will be to your advantage. The other thing that I think people, uh, people might find interesting is that another way that you grab cognitive attention is by, a I'm going to skip the second one and just go to the third one, is a compelling story about your company. That you create some sort of story about your company that is memorable, that is personable, that uh, maybe about overcoming odds, but something that makes it a good story because one of the keys can be making the media your friend. And the media reports certain kinds of stories. Human interest stories, personal stories, overcoming the odds type stories. So give you some examples of that, uh, well-known examples. You know the eBay story about Pierre Amidyar started, the, started eBay because of his girlfriend and Pez dispensers? You know that story? Not true. Not true, but, but talk about a story that got picked up by the media. Very much picked up by the media in the sense of it was a personal story, it sounded great, and the media wanted to write about it. Another example. Uh, you know, when Yahoo started, they had, those, they had the Beatles, you know, the, the Volkswagen Beatles, they would drive around in. They were painted purple and said Yahoo. That was a media attention grabber. So the idea here is that you want to get the media on your side if you can, especially if you're starting consumer product or consumer service. Do something that makes you stand out, that makes you a story. So again, sure, it's about having a good product, about having a good service and all that kind of thing, but it's also about understanding media. And, and letting the media work for you. A story in Business 2.0 is worth an awful lot to you if you can get that. So let, let, let the media be your friend and try and think of ways you can actually create media about your company. Another thing that you typically want to do is you typically want to think about who are the bigger companies that might come into the space you want to be in and how do you keep them out of it. Um, and so what you have to do in that situation is think about who might come into this space and then give them a reason not to by letting them invest in your company or by doing some sort of a marketing alliance with them. Uh, again, actually eBay is a good example of this. Um, when they were very small, one of the things that they did was, was try and develop some alliances with AOL, Amazon, and I think it was Yahoo. Uh, and it turns out they, didn't get, they only got alliances with one of them. They only got alliance with AOL. But what they did in the negotiation around those alliances, they, first of all, they kept AOL out of the market. And secondly, they delayed Amazon and, and, um, and Yahoo from getting into the market. So if you can look ahead, and these are maybe bigger, bigger companies than you might aspire to, but if you think ahead of who's in that market, who's likely to come in, and how can I keep them out to give myself a head start before they decide it's a good market, it's to your advantage. So pay attention to who might come in and how you can keep them out. And then finally, I think one of the things we've seen is that it's particularly helpful if you can control the market. And again, this is when you've moved on and you've gotten a bit bigger, but trying to buy out rivals so that you take out stepping stones into the market. Um, and, and what this is actually, I, mean, I probably have to say, it's a fairly anti-competitive story. 
Um, but this is what entrepreneurs at least try to do before the market gets too big, is try and take out rivals. So maybe the idea here is the great opportunities are, are shaped, not discovered. And maybe one last thing on this issue is I want to talk about the special case of networked businesses, because we found some pretty interesting things on this. Network businesses, and the business that we looked at here was called was wireless gaming. It's an industry you probably, many of you know. And in that industry, you know, you, we looked at the publishers. If you're a wireless gaming publisher, like an Informa or a Jamdat or an Infusio or Digital Bridges, um, what you have to have is um, uh, you need to have relationships with carriers like Verizon, handset makers like Nokia, uh, brands like um, Lord of the Rings, and, uh, and platforms, which is either Sun or Qualcomm. It's, it's, it's the brewer or the Java platform. So you've got to really put together a, a network of complementers to be successful in that industry. And we've seen some pretty interesting things about how you do that. And these are actually pretty small companies and how they actually were successful. First of all, what, they, what you do if you're starting in an industry where you need to have a lot of complementers that you've got to put it together, what you have to do is put that ecosystem together early. So you start building the tech, build that network early before other people start, rather than spending your time making the product great. Get the network going, and then co-create the market with your partners. That will really embed you in a relationship with key partners. And even large firms will talk to you if it's early in the market, because they'll think, oh, that might be an interesting opportunity. Let's experiment with that. So Verizon will talk to you if you're little, if it's very early in a market that they're kind of intrigued by. The second thing idea is, is a kind of a counterintuitive one, but you want to build the, the network simultaneously. In this market, everybody agrees that the most important partner is a carrier, so a Verizon, a Nextel, so forth. But instead of starting with them as your partner, what you try to do is understand the whole network, that it's really carriers, it's brands, it's... it's um, it's handset manufacturers and so forth. Envisioning the whole market at once and then putting the, the network together simultaneously. Because what you can do in that situation is you can leverage your ability to, to be the broker in the market. So you can say on the one hand to, let's say, Verizon, I'm talking to Qualcomm. You say to Qualcomm, I'm talking to Verizon. Oh, by the way, I'm talking to this brand. And so you can use your ability to broker those relationships to enhance your value. So you may be nobody, you may be some small entrepreneur, but your ability to broker the network makes you valuable and has them signing up to join you. Third idea is you want to, what does redundant ties mean? It means when there are key uncertainties in the market, what you want to do is play all of them. Again, wireless gaming is a good example. What was going to be the dominant genre in wireless gaming? You know, was it going to be the same gamers that were in video games? Was it going to be the same kind of games? Some players thought that was the way it was going to unfold, but in fact it didn't. It actually turns out to be a market that has more women players, has more over 40 players, and people were more likely to do what's known as casual gaming, which means they want, they're, they're riding on the train home, they're commuting, and they want to play a game. They don't want to get engaged in some big action game. They want to play something quick. Plus, plus you don't get a lousy experience on a phone, typically. So what the better companies did was they actually played a variety of genres at once. So you're actually trying to play all the uncertainties. And then finally, we found out you never tie up with competitors. Competitors, if you're making relationships with competitors, almost always go sour because there's just too much conflict of interest. Finally, I think a really interesting thing we found is we were, this is an industry that's in Seattle, it's primarily in Seattle, LA, and San Francisco. And what we found is that the LA companies got the picture on how to, how to be successful. And a little bit the Seattle ones. And the Silicon Valley companies, for the most part, didn't get it. Because what they were following was the classic Silicon Valley model. It's all about the technology, get a key customer, and focus. 
And if you see what this is really about, it's not, it's, not about, it's not about the best technology. It's about getting the ecosystem, not a customer. And it's not about focus. It's about figuring out the market with a lot of bets. So it's, in fact, the opposite of what oftentimes we hear that is the right way to do it. So if you're in a networked industry with a lot of complementers, you maybe want to play a different, story, different game. Let's see. Where do I want to go? Maybe go to finish up. Maybe you can open this up. I probably need to open this up, right, Tom? All right. Okay. I'm just doing a little bit on this. Some more, some stuff we did. What strategy is simple rules? How do you figure out your strategy? Where's the edge of chaos? These ideas really came from uh, actually some work that Shona and I did, um, where we were looking at product development in in the U.S. in, in the computing industry in in the U.S. and Europe. And we came to realize that if you told us what a really horrible company looked like, like couldn't, you know, it was just not, not functioning well, we could tell you, and you told us how they were bad, we could tell you where they were located. Mm -hmm. So that they were way overstructured and really efficient and creating all the wrong products, we knew it was the East Coast. If you told us it was really fun and really crazy, but they couldn't ship anything, we knew it was the West Coast. <laughs> so making Chicago the perfect spot, I suppose. Um, so we started to realize that there was something about the amount of structure that you have that, that was important. And in particular, we started to realize that strategy was about having processes like product development or alliances and a few simple rules, so some structure, and that the amount of structure actually mattered. So we then did, actually not Chen, but then we went on with some other students and stuff. We started figuring out what the rules were. And what we did was we did a study of internationalization by Finnish... Singaporean and U.S. ventures, and how do they internationalize? And the problem, if you think about it, is, okay, what's an international process? I'm going to France, I learn a bunch of stuff, and now I'm going to go to Italy with my product. And the question is, what did I learn in France that I'm going to bring forward to Italy, right? And so what are you learning? And what we started to realize is the companies that internationalized well were figuring out certain things early and certain things later. They were figuring out what kinds of countries to go to, and how to go, like uh, we're going to go in with acquisition or we're going to go in with um, direct sales or whatever. They would learn those things fairly quickly. But what was harder to learn and what the more successful companies did learn was they started to learn temporal rules about how fast they could go, about the order in which things came, anything that was anything that was timing. What's the sequence? Um, typically, what was the sequence? What's the synchronization? And what's the, what's the pacing of it? So people started to learn the timing rules. The last thing that people rules, learn is the rules about how to get out. So we started playing around with rules. What's this got to do with, with a venture? It says that if you think about the key processes in your venture, whether it's alliances or product development or it's internationalization, that you ought to be thinking about those rules. And if you're not learning those rules, you, ought to be, you, better, you better come up with them. So think about, I really should have some timing rules. I really should have some priority rules. Otherwise, I won't be as successful. Then the last thing that we did, the last thing I'm going to talk about, is this idea of being on the edge of chaos. And we started really playing around with what that meant in different kinds of markets. And then I'll open it up to you guys. Um, we started thinking about, well, dynamic markets and markets where high-tech companies are tend to have four attributes. They tend to be fast-moving, or they can be complicated, or they can be ambiguous, or they can be uncertain. Okay, so four attributes. We decided to try some simulations and then, um, and then also look at some empirical data on what was going on in those different kinds of markets. So the idea is, being on the edge of chaos, is you can be too structured and you can't get anything done because you're, you're just wrapped up and you can't adjust. Or you can be too unstructured and it's too crazy and you never get going. 
So you want to have some sort of optimal structure, we were starting to realize. Let me show you some of the results. I think they're kind of interesting. This is a, this is a market. What you have is, is a lot of opportunities. So we're thinking about a lot of opportunities, a fast flow of opportunities. The internet boom of the late 90s, it's a classic example. What this picture is showing you is how your, what a performance bang you get just by being in a market like that. And actually, the empirical facts on the internet, you know, we all talk, we all hear about, you know, all these companies that died. The actual survival rate in the internet boom was much higher than most, most periods. Yeah, there was a lot of death, but there was also a lot of startup. And in fact, many companies did well. Many, many companies did well. And some of them became lifestyle businesses that you don't know of, but many companies did well. So the first thing we started to realize is if you have, if you're in a, if there's an opportunity that's just got, there's just a lot of opportunities around a space, it's a really good place to be. On the other hand, there's really bad places to be. And that's in complicated markets. What's a complicated market? It's a market where you have to get a lot of things right. So biotech is a classic example of a complicated market, where you've got to get FDA right, and you've got to get a whole bunch of things right to be successful in a market like biotech. And if you look at the results in biotech, it's mostly low performance. Yes, there's some stars like Genentech and Amgen, but mostly it's not a very good investment. And so this is too complicated a market. So you, so you can see in that picture, you want low complexity, high velocity. Okay, then we looked at a different kind of a market. We said, suppose it's an ambiguous market. You can't really tell what's going on. It's, it's a really early market, it's ambiguous, and you can't figure it out. You don't really know what people are buying, you don't know what the business model is, you don't know who the customers are. So what does this picture say? It says, if you're in a highly ambiguous market, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. You can just kind of do a bunch of stuff. You won't really do very well, but you're just kind of doing stuff, and it's mostly about luck. In contrast, a low ambiguity market is about skill, about the ability to be at the right structure. So what that says is, if you think back to some of the other things I was saying, it says that if you're in a really ambiguous new market, you want to structure it. As I was saying before, you want to, you want to, you want to keep the other players out, you want to lock it, you want to, you want to claim it, and so forth. And so if you're a skilled person, you want to get rid of that ambiguity by structuring the market. If you're not so skilled and you want to learn it, then you don't want it to structure. So it's kind of an interesting, I think, different strategies if you enter those kinds of markets and what you might want to do depending on how good you are. And then finally, we looked at uncertainty. These are markets where you kind of know what's going on, but you can't, you can't judge the, the uncertainty. Typically, these are growth markets. So you may know there's going to be a genre in wireless gaming, but you don't know which one. You know there's several different standards, but you don't know who's going to win. So you know things, but there's uncertainty. What this says is, if it's a, if it's a stable market, again, it doesn't matter too much what you do. If it's an unstable, uncertain market, then what you really are trying to do is find the optimal structure. And so you really want to manage how, how much structure you have. You're also seeing that the, that the mean has moved, and so you actually want less structure. So as you go into an uncertain market, what you typically want is less structure, and you typically want to manage the amount that you have. What makes uncertain markets so hard for big companies is because they're coming from a mar markets like this where it didn't matter how much structure you had, and they're going to a market where it does matter. And so that's one of the reasons why big companies have trouble going into new markets. Um, on the other hand, for small companies, one of the things you're actually not seeing in this curve, but you actually see, is it looks like a U here, but it's actually skewed. And it's really steep on this side, and it's a little more skewed on the other. And that's the risk for young companies, is they don't get structured enough. So you've got to get structured fast if you're a new. In fact, in my experience, most of the best entrepreneurial companies have more structure than their peers, their entrepreneurial peers. So they get some structure fast. Okay. 
think I might get to the end here and maybe give you, a, give you a little space, or I can also keep talking. But essentially what I've been trying to talk about is how to get started. Great team, great market. Remembering that raising money is a negotiation. It's not a, it's not a beauty contest about your business plan. You want to shape markets, and you want to think about managing time and managing structure. Um, so I think I'll leave it at that and maybe open it up and see if you all have, have some uh, comments or thoughts. Yeah. question for you on the optimal market to choose. Yeah. You mentioned that growth markets and the continuous growth. Do you think the answer, your answer would have been the same 10 years ago, sort of like at the birth of the moon? Um, and also, I noticed you don't have emerging markets on the surfer. Mm -hmm. We're essentially, what would be the X factor being there? Okay. Um, I forget what's on the surfer plot. It should be. Um, oh, I was supposed to repeat the question. Say the question. Uh, the question was. I don't know, I'm losing the question. The question, the question was, why, why didn't I say. Say the question again. Growth markets because 10 years ago we had no idea of the concept of what the growth yep. would be. We're but now you actually have the data. Yeah, I think, I think if you turn the clock back, it's still true that if you start too soon, it's more difficult. If you think of the really the big winners, oh, I'm sorry, I was supposed to repeat the question. Um, the, the question was whether uh, what I thought if we turn the clock back 10 years ago and would it have been better to start early in the internet? So I think the, the, what the question was. Um, yeah, I think, if we, I think if you look back at that time, what you will see is that the companies that ultimately became the most successful typically started a bit later than some of the other peers. They were not the first mover. eBay wasn't the first mover. Amazon wasn't the first mover. Yahoo wasn't the first mover. They, were, they started a little bit later as, as the market was starting to ramp. Now, where exactly it was in growth, I'm not sure. But they, started, they, they were not the first. You want to be early, but not necessarily first, is what I'd say. Anything else on people's minds? Yes. You talked about how to influence on the media to create a great market. But sometimes the market itself is a high-tech company that you are trying to sell your product to them. It, the market is what? Uh, your customers are themselves high-tech companies, like for example Intel. You want to sell your product to them. Yes. Yeah? So they're not ordinary people. So how do you want to influence those high-tech companies to, 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 buy, buy, to, to buy, buy your product? product? Yeah. Um, the question was, how do you? How, not every not every buyer is a is a consumer. How do you influence big companies who might want to buy your product? Um, I think it still is about uh, about starting at, at at the start of a growth market. It's still to your advantage. Um, one of the things that big companies typically do that you can that you as entrepreneur can play is is big companies will typically wait, and they will watch and see what happens in a market. And they won't go into an early market soon. Uh, and so you can kind of count on them to be a little slow and perhaps give them, give them some revenue, give them some ownership in your company, and that will keep them out and give you some space so that you can, you can deal with those bigger deal, deal with whatever the market might be. As far as approaching an Intel, I'm not sure that I have a secret idea about how one approaches a big company different from a small company um, or, or consumer market. Um, but in general, what I would say is, is that it's... It's anticipating and taking advantage of the fact that big companies have a tendency to wait and to be looking for options. And what you can do as an entrepreneur is offer yourself up as their option into a new market. Okay. Uh, yes. 
Okay, the question was, is there a time when, when you're, you're, uh, you're at the point where you no longer have an adventure and you actually have a real company and should you do things differently? Um, I don't know as I would say, I'm not sure that's something that I've thought a whole lot about. It's, it looks to me like you, you do change your, you do change a bit in the sense you become more acquisition oriented if you get bigger. You may start, um, you may start, I think mean, the biggest challenge is probably finding your second product. Is probably the biggest challenge that people have. One of the things that I've seen uh, entrepreneurs try to do when they get that little bit bigger is try to turn themselves into a platform so that then other people are building businesses off them. So there is a bit of a change in your strategy, I think, because you're going to multiple, multiple products and you may be trying to go to a platform strategy. Yep? Uh, sir, you mentioned what uh, a great single slide, uh, but I didn't understand uh, how someone like me, uh, who is, as you said, like, an American a second startup, uh, who is an engineer with most of his contacts and, you know, uh, with engineers in the 20s, uh, uh -huh. later, you know, I know, 50s or something. Uh, how should someone like me, uh, with these conditions, uh, can form such a team, you say, in practice? I mean. In practice, how can you do that? Um, in practice, what I think some of the people here at Stanford have done who've been successful is they've, they've hooked up with their, their professors. And then the professors have the contacts that, that we're talking about. Um, so, you know, make me and Tom rich. Um, no, but part of it, the other way you can do it is actually they also go out, go out into industry yourself and start to meet some people. But I think you do know so few people who would have contacts and trying to get contacts through the people you actually know. Professors, I'd say, for students here, um, uh, or else go out into industry for a little while and start to build up some, some contacts. Okay. Yes? Um, you said that in a good uh, venture group, it's from age 20 to 50s. Is there yeah. a reason why you chose 50 as a limit? Oh, because everybody who's 60 is playing golf. <laughs> oh, repeat the question. Is there any reason why I stopped at 50? Um, yeah, because most 60-year-olds are, are, have moved, you know, are checking out at that point. But 60-year-olds are fine, too. No, not ouch. That's, they're, they're now enjoying the good life. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the, I think people underestimate, and, and it's often thought of that, that the, the younger people are like the adventurous risk-takers, and the older people are like the father figures. And that's actually not always true. I mean, there's some pretty edgy 40- and 50-year-olds, and they're pretty conservative 20-year-olds. It's really not about riskiness or not riskiness. It's more about the way in which you look at the business. And, and younger people tend to not have baggage from the past, so they look at it sometimes interestingly, sometimes naively. And, and older people tend to have a, a broader range of experience. But no, it was an arbitrary. Yes? My question is about the background data for all this research institutions you've yeah. um, You mentioned a lot of different geographies, a lot of different industries, but I'm wondering where, what kinds of companies were represented and how did you get the information? Is it financial, possibly surveys? What I did is, I, you know, uh, the question was, uh, how did we get the, the data about the studies that I was talking about? They're all different. You know, some of them, uh, most of them we were talking to the companies, at least in part. Uh, because uh, you can only get so much from archival data sources. So we, sometimes we use archival data sources, but a lot of times we're talking to the companies, talking to a range of companies, talking to their partners, and so forth. So the, the studies are all, I mean, they're all, some are in, some was wireless gaming, some was a bunch of different industries. It was, it was all kinds of industries. Um, and so it's, it's more of a... Anything that... We never studied? 
We never studied biotech. As a matter of fact, because you know, because everybody else, you know, you probably don't know what's going on in academics, but a lot of people in academics are studying biotech, and so we just never did. Our new studies, by the way, we're, our new new thing is actually medical devices and uh, and clean tech is our new our new industries we want to look at, and then try and look at some problems there. Hey, anything else on people's minds? Yes. The casual dating rule. Yeah. Casual dating rule working working for many facets of life. Um, the idea of casual dating is that um, people like, like you or, and, I'm, and like myself don't always have, we may know people. And, you know, let's say, I, I think I use the example, Tom might introduce you to Jim Breyer at Excel, but you don't really know Jim Breyer. And you don't really know some of these people. You wouldn't really know Steve Jurvetson. And so what you, what you often want to try to do, if you can, is, is build up relationships with people by, by engaging them on issues that aren't about money. Engaging them about advice um, on a variety, you know, advice about the product, advice about hiring, just advice. So you have, so you start to build a relationship with people before you ask them for money. So they start to get to know you. They start to get engaged in in your business. So that's what casual dating is about: is to recognize that fundraising isn't just when you go out to raise the money. Fundraising is about um, having relationships with people and having those built beforehand. Yeah. Um, you said that a certain amount of structure is necessary um, in dealing with um, uncertain or ambiguous industries. Mm -hmm. So, what? How does that? Um, how would a startup venture go about achieving that? <coughs> does that just mean a strong vision, uh, bringing in more people? Okay. All right. So, what does it mean? The question was, what does it mean to have structure? If I said that was a good thing to have in uncertainty and ambiguity, it means having a few more processes. What there are actually rules around. Uh, whether it's, you know, I'll give you a, actually a classic example of, of Yahoo's product development. Um, if you compared them to a lot of different startups at that time, they were actually somewhat more structured. And they had some structure around uh, every developer has to be able to work on every project. Uh, they had a very strict priority system, so everybody understood the priorities. They had a, a, a launch process that they were following. So in general, if, there, if there's a mistake that entrepreneurs make, it's they're, they're typically too, they're too understructured. And so adding, adding structure in terms of, of process structure around product development, perhaps around hiring, perhaps around alliance formation. Um, so that kind, of, that kind of structure. Because I think what you'll see is most of the time, entrepreneurs are winging it more than they should. Okay. Thank yeah. you very much. Oh, OK. On behalf, of, on behalf of Basis and SDP, we'd like to thank you for all right. speaking today. Oh, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And thanks, everybody, for coming. Thank you all for coming.